We all want to think our own future is important in ours and yours and mine. It is just not the way you think. Let's just say I think the universe is telling me that some fates are inescapable. And even if I could get out of mine, it might just fall to someone else. Someone you know? Spunk, you are a... You are very important to me, as are you to me, Captain. Chris. Welcome to Trectobabble Psychobabble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd, and just as handsome with a beard as without. And I'm Elizabeth, a student of humanoid psychology and maid of dreams that you've forgotten. Ooh. <laughs> our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I take a look at the psychology of Captain Christopher Pike, who occupies the earliest and latest incarnations of the franchise. While the introduction of Pike came in the unaired pilot, The Cage, which we covered in episode 6 of this podcast, footage from the pilot was reused to create the two-parter The Menagerie from TOS's first season in 1966, written by Gene Roddenberry and directed by Mark Daniels and Robert Butler. Kirk, McCoy, and Spock beam down to Starbase 11 under enigmatic circumstances. Spock claims to have received a transmission from Pike, the Enterprise's former captain, but Commodore Mendez informs Kirk that such a transmission would be impossible. You actually don't know what's happened to Captain Pike? About your age, big, handsome man, vital active. I took over the Enterprise from Spock, served with him for several years. 11 years, four months, five days. What's his problem, Commodore? The inspection tour of a cadet vessel. Old Class J starship. One of the baffle plates ruptured. The Delta rays? He went in, bringing out all those kids that were still alive. Just wanted you gentlemen to be prepared. The accident has confined the captain to a hover chair and restricts his communication to a binary set of beeps. One for yes, two for no. Spock covertly informs the nearly mute Pike that he intends to carry out a treacherous and covert mission on Pike's behalf, despite his objections. You know why I've come, Captain. It's only six days away at maximum warp, and I have it well planned. I have never disobeyed your orders before, Captain. But this time, I must. I know. I know it is treachery and it's mutiny. But I must do this. Kirk's immediate concern is over Spock's apparent dishonesty. At first, he suspects a setup, but Spock dismisses any possible doubt when he forges orders for the Enterprise to Talos IV. Visiting Talos IV is the only crime in the Federation currently punishable by death. Spock steals the Enterprise with Pike stored aboard and Kirk left on Starbase, warping directly to Talos IV and manipulating the rest of the crew into ignorance of their true mission. Mendez and Kirk pursue in a shuttlecraft, endangering their own lives, which convinces Spock to beam the pair aboard and turn himself in to McCoy for treason against Starfleet. 
However, Spock locks the computer in control of the ship to ensure it completes its voyage to Talos IV. While en route, Mendes and Kirk conduct Spock's court-martial. Spock pleads guilty and has Pike brought into the proceedings as an active command officer. Spock manipulates his way into presenting so-called evidence tapes to explain his actions. These tapes are, of course, segments of the unaired pilot, The Cage. Mendes is naturally incredulous about how record tapes could include the degree of intimate detail on display, but Spock promises to explain in due time. For a complete breakdown of The Cage, check out episode 6 of Technobabble Psychobabble, Imagined Realities. The images in the trial are actually coming from Talos for itself, a violation of the same general order that has condemned Spock to death. This implicates Kirk in Spock's crime as well, tying the fates of the three men, Spock, Kirk, and Pike together. Despite the insights of the Talosian tapes, all members of Spock's tribunal are compelled to declare him guilty of treason. However, in a final twist, Mendes himself is revealed to be a Talosian illusion as well. Kirk has been distracted by the trial in order to prevent him from stopping the Enterprise from returning Pike to Talos IV. Word reaches Kirk from the real Mendes that the extenuating circumstances waive General Order 7 and absolve Spock of any wrongdoing. Pike is returned to the surface and reunited with Vina, where the pair are allowed to live out their lives in the illusion of bodily wholeness. Yeah, Elliot, I, it was really strange for me to watch this episode because, you know, I had watched the pilot already and I was watching this and I realized that at the time it aired, no one else had seen the pilot, you know? Right. So, like, I was watching it having already seen all those episodes, all those scenes and trying to put myself as if this was the very first time I had ever seen any of that. And it was this weird, like, dual timeline, like, experience I was kind of having, like, watching this show. Totally. Um, the, there's something really clever, despite, you know, so clip shows used to be a real, a real popular thing in 20th century TV because making TV is so expensive and they needed ways to fill out seasons. And so the fact that this is such an, it's an early episode of TOS, even discounting the fact that it's reusing the pilot, um, but even so, the way in which the clips are used, I think, is really smart because they draw attention to the fact that there's no way, um, if these were just like bridge logs or something, that they would have all the, you know, seeing inside Pike's quarters when he's talking to the doctor about his doubts and seeing on the planet and all that stuff. It's impossible because it's coming from the Telosians and their telepathy. That's, that's the explanation. And, of course, in the cage, we're seeing the Talosians themselves watch Pike's, um, his imagined reality um, on their little screen as well. So there's this really clever sort of uh, fourth wall breaking aspect to this where we're watching this show that didn't happen but did happen in history. But it's also the way we're being presented to it by the aliens who are making it into a show because that's how they're experiencing the reality of someone else. It's a lot going. There's a, um, this, there's a lot of yeah. meta things happening right there. And it's just like, I don't know. I, again, I'm like drawn to the appreciation of like TV was relatively new, like when this came out, you yeah. know? So like yeah. TV was still this like futuristic special thing of like of course a, an advanced alien civilization would watch things on a television just like we would this is the future <laughs> yeah well that and things like having the the talos uh for document be this piece of paper and all of that i just love it yeah, yeah. <laughs> the anachronism of it 
Yeah, I also, I thought it was hilarious <laughs> that, so you've got all these dudes in the room um, watching this memory of Pike with Vina as the Orion slave girl. Remember that scene? I do. That was weird. They're like animals. Vicious, seductive. They say no human male can resist them. Already a little cringy and dated, but I just thought it was funny that it's like, they're mentioning in the scene, yeah, we're watching Pike lose control, getting like getting so horny by this alien pheromones that he can't control himself, and they're all just sitting around watching it. <laughs> it's like, this is, um... This is something. Yeah, I mean, I lack the male gaze, but for me, <laughs> I was like, wait, is this supposed to be really erotic and seductive? Because I just think it's strange. Like, I was like, it just, it didn't match to me what it was supposed to be portraying, you know? Yeah, some of it you might say, I mean, this is true whenever the Orions show up, in my opinion, even into the newer series, it's like, this is one of those things that, yeah, I think I mentioned in our Riza episode, Gene Roddenberry was a very horny man, yeah. which is fine. We don't, we don't shame that, but it doesn't always make for the most coherent uh, narrative ideas. And this is something that has kind of plagued the franchise ever since the very beginning, right? It's just, what do you do with this? Because it's so exotic and weird and we'll someday we'll do an episode about the orion slave girls and all of that stuff but i just i thought it was funny that all these guys are sitting around watching someone else who's in the room a memory of him being too horny to cope that was just yeah. a choice that someone made strange evidence from the past how the telosians planning to breed a society of human slaves tempted captain pike with the earth woman they held in captivity and as she appeared to him in many forms each more exciting than the last Pike was beginning to weaken. Um, speaking of choices, uh, having seen now what Pike's ultimate fate is, uh, what do you think about where he ends up at the at the end of this episode? To be honest, I I was having a really hard time with Pike going to the planet and choosing to go to the planet, and and I was really trying to sit with what was making me uncomfortable about that, and. I think where I first landed was this idea of like, somehow I, I wanted him to like take a higher road or something like that. You know, like mm. that, I think that was like where I first landed with this of like, somehow that felt like he could have done something better or different or like this just seemed like a weird out. But ultimately I think that would have him continuing to live his life in actual reality versus going into this like illusionary world kind of like I guess what VR is like the closest thing we would have to it today um and I was talking about that with my husband and like saying like there's something that's not that's making me really uncomfortable like with that's where he ended up and then um he asked me well if it had been you what would have you done and I had to sit with that for a minute and I realized I would have gone to the planet you know yeah. and yeah, I would have gone to the planet. And how um, hypocritical that is of me. You know, like, it's so much easier that, like, you know, for me to look at somebody else and say, you should take the higher road and live this, you know, 
like and endure your suffering and not escape from it but then totally not have that approach for myself if I was in that situation so then I had a lot more just I think compassion for Pike's decision and just like yeah I get that you know like if I if I was in that chair and I was reduced to saying yes or no and blinking lights and having my full mental and emotional faculties and being trapped in my body, why wouldn't I live in a world that would feel just as real and I could have my body bodily wholeness and, you know, have a reprieve from that life? It's not like I would have had something even equivocal or even better if I had stayed in the chair. And so that, that was a really interesting um, and I think really revealing and worthwhile journey, like personal journey that I went on from just like thinking, oh, something better should have happened to realizing like, oh, mm -hmm. if, I, I, if I had been in that position, I would have gone. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's unnatural for us in any medium to expect our like heroes to have better convictions or to be more stoic than we are i think that's natural um at the same time i hear you there's something kind of ableist about this idea that yeah being confined to a, a, a space wheelchair is so bad that it's better to have a completely imaginary existence with the telosians and of course it's connected to vena's uh own choice from the cage which we talked about uh to stay on Talos uh, because her body was not put together in the right way, right? When she was, at, when, when she crashed on the planet um, and it being connected to this, it's it seeming like vanity, but there may be being something deeper to it. And again, as you say, when you filter it through having your own experience, putting yourself in their shoes, would you really make a different choice? And I, I, I appreciate the honesty with that and you know pike to his credit we we should say you know he he's against this plan initially mm -hmm. and doesn't want spock to do it primarily i think because he doesn't want anyone else to um to suffer uh for his for his betterment you know spock is potentially going to get condemned to death or their careers are going to be harmed at the very least um and it's only beat by the Telosian manipula manipulation at the end that that doesn't happen. And that's, of course, connected to the reason why Pike is in the chair in the first place is him having the sacrificing for others. So in, in some ways, you could say he earns the right for this choice at the end uh, to live in this way. Uh, but to, to me, the other piece of this is it's not just the fact that he has, you know, like restricted mobility and... Um, this sci-fi version of a of a disability it's his entire all the nuances of what he thinks and feels uh has been restricted to a binary set of ones and zeros it's yes or no yeah one beep or two beeps and even now it's like it's so quaint in the episode that this this wheelchair thing is iconic in in just the zeitgeist right i think without ever having seen star trek people recognize that image of the guy in the wheelchair with the with the beeping lights chris was that really you on the screen
And I think part of that is because of this idea that it's like your whole existence is reduced to on or off like a light switch and how incredibly horrifying that is, even in its simplicity. Yeah, I agree. To have the complexity of your emotional life be, you can't express it. To not be able to communicate in that way and to have such a rudimentary connection to the outside world would be horrifying. You know, like that would be, I would be scared. I would be frustrated. I would be despondent if I, if I was Mm -hmm. suddenly not able to communicate the complexity of my inner life anymore. To me, that's one of the magical things about this episode is the empathy that you get for this character. And one of the reasons why I think the franchise has gone back to him in new incarnations is that so uh, you know the we saw a bit of pike pre-accident in the cage flashbacks but most of the empathy we get for him as a character at this point is just him in this chair and it's not it's not just the fact like i said that he's disabled it's the fact that so there's that scene where spock is lying to mccoy and says you are not to disturb captain pike with any questions simply take good care of him Follow Spock's instructions to the letter. And uh, Pike is just doing beeps over and over again. Yeah. No, no, no. Right. But no what? What does that mean? And you can un- you can understand just through the way the story is written, all the different possible things that he's trying to get out and is just stuck. And to me, the, you know, that can be a metaphor for a bunch of things, for a kind of neurodivergency for just um, general sort of a, a lack of language that you might have to, to say what you want to say um, and that kind of frustration or just feeling like you aren't being understood by the world or the people around you. It's incredibly powerful to me. And the, yeah. the, the notion of being released from that prison, I think as you say, putting yourself in that position. No, I think we would, most of us would make that choice. Yeah. Cause being able to reach out and connect with other people, like that's one of the most important parts about being human. Like we're wired that way. If we can't communicate, like humanity could all, you could say that humanity is all about communication and relationships. And if you can't do that, like you're missing a really vital necessary psychological nourishment though um i i also want to say that watching the chair i just couldn't like stephen hawking had a better setup but then i said in that frame of reference the perihelion of mercury would have processed in the opposite direction (laughs) like why couldn't we give that to pike and and, and i know the timeline um stephen hawking came later but to me it's just like that's a limiting vision, I think, that, mm. you know, even in the future, that is the best we could offer someone who was disabled. And, and and part of me is like, even like a couple decades later, we did better than that. And so what mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, Star Trek's all about what, what we could be, being optimistic. Like, what is the best version of ourselves that we could imagine? And this, I think, fell a little short, just like what, what technology and medical science was able to offer Pike in the wake of that accident. Fair. 
Um, I'll say in defense of that, that, it, you know, you, you can allegorize mm-hmm. the chair to a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Like, I think, yeah, it's hard for us to see how when we have the technology today to give someone with uh, similar kinds of neurological injuries the ability to communicate more effectively than, than Pike has, uh, why they would limit it that way. But there are any number of things that this can symbolize. You know, it can be Alzheimer's, for example, where you're not injured in the way, in the same way. It's, it's not like a thing that suddenly cuts you off um, from your, your neurological system the way you had been experiencing it. But it is an inexorable loss of a connection to reality that, or that, that a kind of connection to reality that you're accustomed to and that allows you to communicate with most other people effectively to the point where, yeah, you're still you somewhere, but no one else can see you. In his condition, he's under observation every minute of every day. And totally unable to move, Jim. His wheelchair is constructed to respond to his brain waves. Or he can turn it, move it forwards, backwards slightly. Through the flashing light, he can say yes or no. But that's it, Jim. That's as much as that poor devil can do. His mind is as active as yours and mine, but it's trapped inside a useless vegetating body. And there's no way he could even have asked for that message to be sent. And to me, that's a real thing. that we haven't come close, as far as I understand, uh, today to discovering the mystery behind. Our next look comes from Discovery's second season from 2019. If Memory Serves was written by Dan Dworkin and Jay Beatty and directed by T.J. Scott. Giorgio and Section 31 are trying to track down Michael Burnham and Spock after she kidnapped him to return him to Talos IV, where he, in his mentally scarred state, has insisted to go. Vina welcomes the pair, and they beam underground, where they are greeted by the production-updated Talosians. They inform Michael that in order to recover Spock's sanity, they require access to her and her adopted brother's childhood trauma. After some protest, Michael consents, and we witness Spock's fractured memories involving a premonition of when he was young, the Red Angel, and impending galactic doom. Meanwhile, Stamets is trying to reconnect with his resurrected husband, as well as to acclimate him back to life on Discovery. But he harbors understandable resentment towards Tyler, i.e. Vok, who, you know, murdered him. Culber isn't reacting as Stamets would hope, as everyday existence proves too distant from his current sensation. He attempts to provoke Tyler into bringing Vok out again in order to purge his identity crisis. In the wake of all that has happened, Culber cannot continue his relationships from before his death, including his marriage. Despite Section 31's sanctions, Pike is determined to track Michael and Spock down himself. After reprimanding Saru for allowing the fight between Tyler and Culber, he is contacted telepathically by Vina, who explains that their past together has kept her tethered to her sanity and human identity. She connects him to Michael and Spock on Talos IV, who explains the necessity of following the Red Angel's designs. 
On Faith, Pike attempts to use the spore drive to mushroom jump Discovery to Talos, but the hub has been corrupted seemingly by Tyler on orders from Section 31. However, we see that it is actually Aram, the semi-artificial intelligence on Discovery, who is responsible under coercion from control. Despite the sabotage, Discovery finds its way to Talos by more conventional means. They are followed closely by Leland and Section 31, who lock onto Spock and Michael simultaneously. During the standoff, Vina contacts Spike again and convinces him to let them go. Leland appears to beam the pair aboard, but this is another illusion created by the Telosians. The real Michael and Spock are still in a shuttle, which docks with Discovery. With a pair of fugitives in their keep, Pike puts the ship on the run. Um, I want to start by talking about Culver and Stamets here. I have to say, I, I, I think the Culver story in and of itself is interesting, but it is very difficult watching what Stamets is going through. Um, trying to keep his own pain and mixed feelings about, you know, he, he gets his spouse back, which is wonderful, but it's not quite the person that he lost anymore. And he's trying to be the caretaker, but he himself is in need of caretaking that he's not getting. I'm just trying to help. I'll do anything. Please tell me how. I don't know what to do. You keep pushing me to feel something. You want me to just pick up where we left off as if nothing happened? You have no idea. Losing you was 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 the worst thing that ever happened. But but now that you're here again, I'm I'm just trying to treat it like what it is. A miracle that I dreamed about every night since you since I died. Say it! Why are you so angry with me? You know what, Paul? That's a good question. And it's just very familiar in a lot of ways and, and difficult to watch, I have to say. Yeah, that's a really complex relationship to see <clears throat> unfold in the screen because, you know, Colbert <clears throat> is different. You know, like he he had those experiences in the mycelial network that were really traumatic. And like, you know, it's like coming back from war almost. Like you're, you're changed. Mm -hmm. Stamets is also trying to connect with Culber as if that hadn't happened. You know, it's like, can I, can we go back to what we used to have, even though that's not possible? And like, it's not a mm. malicious perspective to have. It's just, I, I can see why that's not quite working. You know, it, it's a struggle to accept a reality that is different from the one you want, but by, trying to act as if everything is the way it used to be like that's you're that's also really disingenuous to a person who isn't living that way anymore um i i can't explain in professional terms why it felt correct uh or realistic that culver would try to provoke tyler the way he did but it felt very much like what would happen um, in him trying to get a violent reaction again, almost you might say trying to get him to kill him again, it, but more, it just, it, 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 I could see and sense and relate to that desire for anger and a, a, a sort of a meeting of that anger response from Tyler that he didn't get ultimately. And uh, I'd, I'd love to know what you thought about that. Yeah. 
so I, I think there's a couple different things that are coming together for Culber in, in that moment and in that experience that I think brings him to confronting Tyler and wanting to provoke um, Vok out and just kind of have and have that battle. I'm sorry. I don't expect you to understand, but it wasn't really me. It was Vok. Yes. Bring him out. It doesn't work like that. I can find him. Stop it. human tendency for reenactment and that comes from a place where we what is familiar to us feels safer on a neurological level than something that is unfamiliar or unknown to us and, and that's part of why people will like have a series of like problematic relationships or they continue to put themselves in situations that aren't good for them um, ultimately not good for them it's because it's familiar and even if ultimately it's problematic, that familiarity is something that our nervous systems, like the animalistic part of our being, that familiarity is comforting and feels safe. They know what to do in that situation. They know what to expect. They know what to predict. And that feels safer than something that's unfamiliar. They're like, I don't know what to do in this situation. I don't know what could happen. I have no way to predict what's going to happen. I have no way to anticipate. I have no way to, I have no pre-knowledge of how to respond or, right. you know, e exist in this environment. And that feels so much scarier than something that feels familiar. And so that, that's one, uh -huh. that's one thing that causes reenactment to happen. Another is we're trying to change the story. You know, like we're trying to get our partner to finally give us the love and care and affection that we so desperately need. And we're just trying over and over and over to get that the only way we know how, which doesn't work. I see Culber kind of going to Vok as a way of like, hey, can I prevent you from killing me again? You know, can I can I change mm -hmm. what happened? by putting myself in that situation again, but this time I can fight back. Maybe this time I will win. You know, like, so there's a reenactment there and there's trying to change the story. And they're trying to change the ending, essentially. And, and mm -hmm. that makes a lot mm -hmm. of sense. And also when we get into our, our fight and flight um, nervous system modes where like, that's how we respond to a threat, we want our opponent to also be in the same state that we are. We want that to be matched and mirrored. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, um, on a on a for a personal example, a couple of years ago, I was driving and it was dark and it was rainy, and I did not see a pedestrian in the crosswalk. So thankfully, I didn't hit them, but I came. Re I just I went through the crosswalk and they were in it, and I didn't see them. And I didn't see them until they banged the front of my car to basically alert me to be like, I'm right here. And I was so freaked out and I was like, oh, oh my God, I'm so, you know. And I pulled over to like collect myself and I see this guy walking toward me. So I get out and I say, I am so sorry. I didn't see you. Are you okay? Do you need me to drive you to a, like, do you need me to drive you to a hospital? Like, what do you need? 
And he was just like, I was in the crosswalk. You didn't see me. Wah! He just like was yelling at me. Um, and I just kept going like, I'm so sorry. I didn't see you. Do you, what, what can I do to help you right now? Do you see how those two energies don't match? Yeah. 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 You, you were, you were Tyler and he was Culver. Yeah, in that example. And yeah. ultimately, like, he turned around and walked away because I wasn't engaging him in that fight response. He wanted me to. He really, really wanted me to. Mm -hmm. But, like, that's not where I was. And, you know, and I, I felt grateful that that was, like, how that situation played out in all of, like, a minute or two. But it was, it was really, like, I, I, like, it took me several minutes to collect myself and get back in the car and, like, go to where I was going. You know, like, that, that really shook me up. And that's what's happening with Tyler and Colbert. Like, Colbert wants Tyler slash Flock to fight him, and Tyler's trying not to, and that makes Colbert all the more frustrated. You know, it, it just kind mm -hmm. of is throwing more fuel on the fire because his whole system is saying, in order to protect myself right now, I need to fight you. So fight me. And, and if, if he can't get resolution of that, he, the threat, the internal threat just keeps escalating. Thank you, yeah, for explaining that. That, I mean, it, it's reflected also in the other relationship on display in this episode, which is between uh, Michael and Spock. <clears throat> Their trauma is different, and uh, I mean, it's sort of an allegory for a, a repressed trauma, right? So this idea that Spock has to work through this thing that happened between them as kids in order to get his mind back on a linear time uh, orientation. The Vulcan is experiencing time as a fluid rather than a linear construct. Conventional logic has not helped him interpret such an experience. He knew you'd be able to help him. He knew that conventional medical understanding would be useless. Should this variance continue, he will lose his mind permanently. It is easier for us to show you his thoughts than explain them, but we require something in return. The memory of what happened between you and your brother on Vulcan. We wish to view the entire conflict between the two of you during childhood, the defining experience, the wound you inflicted. You want to experience our pain? You haven't seen all of the all of this later Spock appearances from the from the older Trek, so this is interesting to me. Um, since we're dealing with this reimagined uh, Pike, um, because. What's what Spock is what they've essentially done here is inserted Michael into Spock's backstory, which is a whole thing. But what they have done is create a motivation or catalyst for Spock's eventual trajectory, which is going to be to choose his Vulcan self over his human self. That's where we get in the motion picture. And we looked briefly at Unification Part 2 in our Generations, uh, our movie episode a couple weeks ago. You are half human. Yes. Yet you have chosen a Vulcan way of life. I have. As you examine your life, do you find you have missed your humanity? I have no regrets. No regrets? That is a human expression. Yes. Fascinating. Essentially, what, what this backstory is alluding to is the fact that that comes from, it, it, at the, in the end, it comes from this trauma between him and Michael. I don't want you with me. Don't you understand that? You are my sister. 
You... You are helping the human part of me learn to the express. The human part of you is so small, it won't make a difference in your life. Why can't you get it through your head? I don't want a freak like you as a brother. I love you. Loved? You're not capable of love. I am. No, you are not. You are Vulcan. And you will always be cold and distant, like a moon somewhere. I don't want you in my life. Stop following me. You weird little half-breed. She was the first person in his life to make him feel anxiety and shame about his split identity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you for giving me that context. I, I, I did lack a little bit of that because I haven't finished the original series. But that scene, yeah. e even despite not having that, that scene made a lot of sense to me. You know, like our... Our families, especially when we're children, can inflict so much good and so much pain on us. Like, the, the closer people are to us, the more deeply they can hurt us. And it's one of those tragic ironies, I think, of human existence, that you need people to be close to you, but you also run the risk of being so deeply hurt by them at the same time. And, and there's a concept that I'm familiar with called, um, like, a core wound. And essentially, it's it's something that happens to you that gives you this belief that is essentially a psychic injury, you know. And, and that's what I see happening here. You know, it's like this this interaction between Michael and Spock basically told him that he he was a freak and who he was wasn't okay. And that message, unfortunately, got reinforced throughout Spock's life. And it's really hard because as adults, both Mike, Michael at least is able to look back and say, Spock, I am so sorry. In point of fact, I'm grateful. Your words showed me how damaging my humanity could be. We were kids, you know, and kids do stupid things, you know. Um, but Spock maybe hasn't gone through enough therapy yet, but he's saying, oh no, this was, this, this, that hurt was a good thing for me because, but he also spent so much of his life after that trying to protect that little boy, you know, like that little Spock felt such pain in that moment that he created this whole internal system to prevent from feeling that kind of way again. It's hard, it's hard to watch someone with this like core belief of part of me is unacceptable, you know? And, and, and that's a wound in the way that it's an injury. And how do, you, how do you adapt your life around that in order to not feel the pain that wound has caused? And in Spock's case, it's by completely denying his human self, which sets up a huge arc for him for the rest of his life. We, we all have things like that. We all have had experiences or people have said things to us that we internalize as true, as something that is fundamentally wrong with us or something that actually doesn't serve our emotional or psychological well-being. We, we all have like these really deep fundamental core wounds and core beliefs from which like our whole psychic structure is built. 
And if you, if you can drill down and actually figure out that base fundamental belief, sometimes it's, it's really humbling to be like, oh, oh, wow, I really think this about myself. So, of course, what we, what we get from this insertion story in terms of the relationships that Spock is developing. So he has his relationship with Michael. Um, and despite, or maybe even because of, as he would put it, um, as you say, he because he hasn't had therapy, he's valorizing his trauma in a certain way. Um, but he recognizes that Michael is the person to bring him to Talos for because he knows about the Talosians what they did for Vina, right? Um, that they have the power potentially to reorder his mind. And then we see looking forwards slash backwards that eventually that knowledge is what um, prompts him to violate orders and take Pike back to Telos when Pike is the one in need of a kind of uh, rescuing by the Telosians' abilities. Um, and so there's this focus on relationships, the trauma that tears us apart, that brings us back together, um, and the irony there, despite the fact that Spock is going to choose his Vulcan self over his human self, in this way, the thing that is sort of fundamental connecting these stories and this past Star Trek with this present Star Trek is this very human relationship between Spock and Pike. And uh, through the character of Vina, essentially. And I think that's wonderfully complex. And to me also is one of the better examples of how the Discovery as a series and New Trek in general has dealt with the continuity. Um, it doesn't always work so well, in my opinion, but this is an example where it really does work well, where inserting themselves into the backstory here yields a, a, an even more sort of complex and nuanced take on these characters and their dynamic. up with Pike's headline series, the season one finale of Strange New Worlds called A Quality of Mercy, written by Henry Alonso Myers and Akiva Goldsman, directed by Chris Fisher and airing in 2022. In this reimagining of the classic Balance of Terror, Captain Pike encounters a boy, Ma'at, during a mission whom he recognizes as one of the cadets who will die in the accident which paralyzes him in the future. He chooses to try and preempt fate by writing Mayat a letter warning him away from Starfleet, but this is interrupted by his future self, who appears in his quarters with a warning of his own, and a Klingon time crystal. Future Pike offers to show the captain his own future, as it has changed thanks to his letters to those cadets. Pike finds himself seven years in the future, during the events of Balance of Terror, a mysterious attack on Outpost 4 by the Romulans, but of course, he is in command instead of Kirk. He confides the situation in Spock, and we proceed with a dark variant of familiar events. Kirk, in command of the Farragut, joins the mission, and the two captains' disparate command styles are essentially contrasted. You flinched. You deliberated. 
and we lost. We fired, Captain, and we were fired upon. That's why you're still here. From the start, you wanted to cripple them, not take them out. We may have different points of view, but do not question my combat readiness. Caution means you're not going to put everything you have into the punch. And that's a good way to lose, because your enemy will see that and act accordingly. If you're saying you're more willing to take risks than I am, I don't disagree. And let me remind you that you're saying that on my ship after yours has been destroyed. The crucial historical change here is that Pike has a more dovish approach to the Romulans, choosing not to destroy the offending vessel. He and the Romulan commander, previously and iconically played by Mark Leonard, engage in diplomatic overtures despite Ortega's transplanted objections. Given his subordinate status and with his ship the Farragut destroyed, Kirk entreats Pike to develop a backup plan with a more aggressive and deceptive nature. The Romulan's suspicious nature proves Kirk's instincts sadly correct, as the subcommander called for the Romulan fleet to reinforce their position in the neutral zone. Pike finds himself surrounded by Romulan ships and squaring off against the Praetor herself. Kirk arrives with a fleet of automated Federation mining craft, which gives Pike the opportunity to bluff with a seeming armada at his command. The commander whom Pike had made peace with is made to submit himself to a culling for his failure not to be caught in his covert actions, and so he and his ship are destroyed anyway, but by his own people. Viewing the Federation as easy targets in the wake of this failed peace, the Romulans begin destroying the Federation decoy vessels and broadcasting an open declaration of war. The Enterprise is damaged in the attack and Spock is critically injured. Of all the minor changes to the future we know to expect, this is the most crucial, it seems, as Spock's own future is deeply tied to peace between Romulus and the Federation. Future Pike returns to bring our Pike back to his present, but not before he and Kirk have a final fourth wall-breaking conversation, confirming the connection between this universe and the Kelvin timeline. I grew up in Iowa. My father, George, was the first officer on the Kelvin. Pike uses the time crystal to return to the present and deletes his letter to Ma'at, having accepted his ultimate fate. Interrupting this moment is the arrest of Una, a fate hinted at in the alternate future. There is something uh, really powerful to me about the exchanging of fates and this sort of cosmic balance that is weaving throughout this whole episode um, and I think is probably inspired by, by the title of the, of the original series episode this is based on, The Balance of Terror. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, whether it's the cadets or Pike himself or the Romulan commander or Spock or Una, there's always someone who has to be sacrificed to the gods uh, in order for things to play out. And it's, it's very Greek in that way. Yeah. Yeah, it's like this. This has to happen to somebody, you know. It's like it's like almost like a fatalistic hot potato. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, in that in that way, it it plays with the idea of mythology, um, which, again, I think Strange New Worlds, more than the other live action series that preceded it, deals with in a in a smart way, taking this stuff which is so sort of sacred within the the Trek space, and treating it in a way that is reverential enough where it doesn't feel like it's disregarding the continuity or the the importance of these characters but you know <clears throat> before his reintroduction in season two of discovery pike was more a symbol 
and this this sort of idea looming over the series and creating the backstory than he was a real person. And now, of course, he is sort of a fleshed out character with um, all of these nuances. But at the same time, this inevitable future is looming over him. And they made the choice within the continuity of the show to have the character know about his eventual future, which is, I think, a really smart choice Mm -hmm. because it removes this sort of false... Uh, prequel syndrome of like we all know that you're doomed to this fate why don't you know this is sort of frustrating yeah yeah and it gives him it gives him agency in a way which i think is really powerful and this is the episode that really really capitalizes on that knowledge of course because it gives him the opportunity to change his fate and plays with what that's going to mean not only for him as a person but for the whole star trek universe yeah, I, I think it, it really solidifies his decision to stay the course because he can see that even if his own personal life doesn't end the way he wants it to, or like this this thing will happen and it kind of plays into the cliche idea of like everything happens for a reason, which I don't particularly love, but if you can take that idea and apply it here, like there's a way that the future unfolds that is better for that accident happening. And, and is there a way that you can trust that even if your own personal story has some tragedy to it, that ultimately it's part of this bigger fabric? And you can you trust in that, you know? Yeah, that idea of trust and that idealistic optimism, I think, is, is really crucial because... On one level, the episode is sort of saying that Kirk's more militant, cynical view of the Romulans in particular in the original timeline was the correct uh, thing to be in place to prevent all the worst things happening. In my opinion, no option. On my responsibility, we are proceeding into the neutral zone. I remain concerned this brash young Starfleet captain follows his own rules. I can't help but wonder, is Kirk the reason I was sent here? If I wasn't here to stop him, would we be led into a war? And Pike needed to be out of the way in order for that to happen. So that's that's dark. But at the same and, and, and we and we see that contrasted with Pike, you know, trying to be diplomatic and succeeding, sadly, <laughs> in getting through to the, the Romulan commander in a way Kirk didn't. Um, and realizing that there was this potential, if not for this other stuff going on in the background, uh, for a different future altogether. Um, but it is in the end, Pike's faith in this better nature and the fact that his relationships will have these ripples, um, that ultimately gives him the, the strength to be at peace with his own fate and so there is a validation of that optimism in a kind of backdoor way and then of course the 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 core of this relationship as we mentioned in the discovery episode is between pike and spock and how that in the end that pays off where spock returns the favor you might say 
um, without realizing it. And that's also the part of Pike's future that he doesn't know about. Like, he knows this accident is going to mm -hmm. happen. He doesn't know he's going to end up on Talos floor with Vina. Like, that's something the right. audience knows that he doesn't. And I find that that omission of foreknowledge really interesting. Yeah, because it requires, then, that act of faith and that it's, you know, Pike is making these choices with only the knowledge up to the point of his accident and being um, stuck in that stupid chair. <laughs> I believe I may owe you a debt of gratitude, Captain. Although for precisely what, I do not know. I know it is treachery and it's mutiny. But I must do this. You mentioned in the menagerie how um, it was maybe not quite as the, 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 the stoic heroic model that you were hoping for on some level for him to choose to be with Vina on Talos Four in the end. Um, but we certainly get it here. This <laughs> um, really difficult sacrifice that he lives with. Yeah, and, and he ultimately is able to live with it because of what it means for other people. Like, that gives him the strength to do it. Like, because he can say, like, I'm doing this for Spock, you know, very on a very personal level. Um, and I'm doing this for the fate of the universe, um, which is, like, more mm -hmm. of an abstract level. But I think uh, that his connection to Spock is really powerful here. But for me, in my own timeline, I watched A Quality of Mercy before I watched the menagerie so I actually didn't uh -huh. realize like I, I knew Pike ended up in this chair but I didn't really realize he ended up on Talos floor with Vina that's really interesting so that yeah that conversation at the end to me having obviously seen it in the order these came out r relatively speaking um that was a clear allusion to uh Pike's ultimate fate mm. um did you see the balance of terror before you watched no, Quality Mercy? No, I didn't. And I was actually, I was really wondering if the events I was watching had a parallel that I, that in the first, in the original series. Because I was like, this feels like it could be referencing an event that happened another oh. way, but I don't know what the original way was. Hey, Trekno Babblers. We hope you're enjoying the show. We wanted to take a moment to invite you to follow us on social media. Yeah, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at TrechnoPsychopod. You can also find us on Facebook at TrechnoBabble Psychobabble Podcast. And if you have any questions or comments or ideas that you would love uh, for us to cover in our podcast, you can email us at TrechnoPsychopod at gmail.com. And we would love for you to also follow us on YouTube at TrechnoPsychopod where you can enjoy our podcasts with all of the stunning visuals that are included. And if you would like to support us on Patreon at Technobabble Psychobabble Podcast, we would appreciate any support you can offer. Enjoy the show. We also have a bonus for you this week, Babblers. We put together a side-by-side -side comparison of Balance of Terror and Equality of Mercy for a fun and informative look at how the classic story was recreated, stretched, adapted, and changed to create the Strange New Worlds finale. The link to the video is in the description and podcast show notes, so be sure to check it out. You Did you like this episode? I did. I really liked it. Okay. 
that's so this is really cool because the the episode is full of allusions to the uh the balance of terror which is a classic episode of the original series you have to watch it i know you will um but for example like ortegas is replacing a different crew crewman who's very prejudiced against romulans i was wondering why that change was there i'm like what happened to ortegas (laughs) like whoo she went dark yeah yeah, and you can say it might have something to do, you know, it's been seven years, but she's she she is essentially taking over the role of a different character in the original episode. We know Outpost 4 has been attacked, sir. So if we intercept Romulans now... After we... a whole century, what will a Romulan ship look like, Mr. Stiles? I doubt if they'll radio and identify themselves. There was a Captain Stiles in the Space Service then. Two commanders, several junior officers. All lost in that war, sir. Their war, Mr. Stiles. Not yours. Romulans can't be trusted. They shot Farragut right in front of us. Stand down, Erica. You can't let them get away with it. Stand down! And I don't know if you noticed, there's all these close-ups on people's faces with the the softbox lighting on their faces, which is just a very 60s thing and is iconic from... And they did it, and there's musical cues. They do that a lot in Stranger Worlds, where there's musical cues that come from the scores from the original series. Oh, that's cool. Like the Gorn episode had... Stuff from Arena and stuff like that. Anyway, um, there's a lot of that stuff. It, it sounds like there's a lot of Easter eggs that I was completely oblivious to. But it still worked for you as an episode. Yeah, it really did. I like to hear that because, you know, I, I wonder watching this whether having that Trek upbringing um, is a necessary component to getting so much out of uh, these episodes especially one like this that is clearly homage and and, and and riffing on stuff that has come before. But you, what you're telling me is that it doesn't necessarily require that, which to me is, it, it's, it's a good sign for the future of the franchise. And it gives me hope because, you know, we are inundated, generally speaking, and specifically with Star Trek, with a lot of nostalgia porn, maybe is a way to put it. Yeah. Where things keep getting remade and sequelized and updated and whatever, um, to the point where it, it almost feels as though nothing new can can be created. And you and I know from our backgrounds that there are no original stories, really. Like, everything is coming from this archetypal pool in our collective subconscious. But at the same time, you want to see that creativity at least on a... Um, superficial level and uh, you worry that all of these sort of self-referential things are you know it's like the uh, uh, the snake eating itself (laughs) like Mm -hmm. it's going to just collapse and it's not going to feel like there's anything else to mine Um, and that that, I think is a real concern with something like Star Trek that has such a huge history but the fact that it feels like an original story to you and it feels like a necessary piece of character story for Pike building on this homage to a different episode to me doesn't feel like treading old ground uh, is a positive sign that I like to see. The, the show works on multiple levels. Like there's a lot for people who have all this context and all this backstory that 
adds a wonderful layer to the show, but I, I didn't feel like I missed anything by not having that context. I was wondering, like, is this, ba like, this is obviously a point of comparison, but I'm lacking that point of comparison. And I was wondering, mm -hmm. of like, did, some, did this event happen in the original series? Like, that wasn't lost on me, but I still really enjoyed the episode. And, you know, I'm still working my way through the original series and Enterprise and a couple movies. Um, other than, and, mm -hmm. and now Lower Decks. Other than that, I've seen everything. Um, so, like, I will eventually yeah. earn my, I have seen all the Star Trek things, like, you know, Girl Scout badge. I will get there eventually. But I, I still really enjoy that episode and just even my general knowledge of like how important Spock is in the Star Trek universe. Like the fact that future Pike said, he's got things to do. Fate of the galaxy type things. Yeah, that tracks. I'm sure that's true. <laughs> I don't know exactly how, but I'm going to, I buy that. <laughs> that's, that's one of the ironies that uh, to me, one of the most powerful moments was that idea, the conversation between Pike and his future self. And his future self says, We all want to think our own future is important in ours, and yours and mine. It is. Just not the way you think. And, boy, that's, that's a hard pill to swallow in some ways. Um, this idea that you are more valuable to the universe as a, a vegetable <laughs> or as a you know a, a confined person confined confined to this chair having this miserable existence up until your friend um manages to save you in in some way uh than being the hero of the story which is how we like to think of ourselves that's that's hard <laughs> revelation that we get in the uh, Discovery episode is Vina reveals to Pike that their interaction from the cage <laughs> is what gave her a sense of connection to her own humanity and sanity. All this time you kept me sane. Kept me tethered to what I once felt. Even though I was never the person you thought I was. Didn't deceive anyone, Vina. I felt it too. Yeah, so we're, we're we're sort of piecing these stories together in a, in a in a in a non-linear way. It's very interesting because you have so you have the cage. You know, Pike has this pretty negative view of the Telosians and what all, all everything they're all about, and adamantly rejects this imagined reality and everything it could possibly be. Are you all still rubbing? They don't mean to be evil. I've had some sense of how good they are. All right. You try one more illusion, you try anything at all, and I'll break your neck. The customs and history of your race show a unique hatred of captivity. Even when it's pleasant and benevolent, you prefer death. This makes you too violent and dangerous a species for our needs. He means that they can't use you. You're free to go back to the ship. And that's it. No apologies. You captured one of us, threatened all of us. And 
Vina is impacted by his uh, his time with her. And then we have the Discovery episode where she reveals to him that he, he has created this connection with her, which then, of course, th that relationship is what saves the day in, the, in that story because of his relationship with her, with Spock, with Michael. And then moving forward, of course, that relationship undergirds uh, Pike's choice to live with his own known, partially known fate to condemn himself to this accident and this and this existence computer delete file but then of course it all circles back because then it is vena's relationship with him that convinces her to uh motivate the delosians to contact spock to have him brought back to T talos in the end so that he can have this imagined reality which he had originally had totally rejected Captain Pike has an illusion, and you have reality. May you find your way as pleasant. So to me, the fact that it is this big ring yeah. um, is, it, it's beautiful on a storytelling level, but it also is um, insightful in terms of what Pike's character is turning into, which is something that is defined by faith in the relationships with the people around him and the impact that he, he has on on the world yeah like it he has a profound impact on the people around him even if he isn't quote unquote the hero of the story he is making so many other things possible for other people and one could hope that that's the kind of impact that we have on our lives that other people are better for having known us well, so what we see in the Strange New Worlds episode is he comes to a kind of peace mm. with this fate that had eluded him prior to that point. Um, and we don't know at this point, at time of recording, whether that will stick or how that might evolve as the character continues. But he, 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 he has this sort of, yeah, this sense that he is okay with this thing that he didn't think was going to be or none of us would hope would be our future but then that is punctuated by this or by the arrest of his first officer by the arrest of number one of una and this sense that fate will always take something from you you know there's certain parameters which seem to be set in stone you know, like, the, you know, as in that episode, the Romulan captain dies in both scenarios. You know, someone has a disfiguring accident, whether that's Pike or Spock. There, there's a price to pay and someone has to pay uh, it. Does the idea of fate, do you believe in that? I'm glad you asked, do I believe in it? Because there's no way I would ever know. I don't think any of us can really know if... if there are immovable points in our lives and through which we have some semblance of control within that container. That, that to me is kind of an external structure that feels imposed upon our lives. I, I do think there's an internal structure and driving force for every individual that we feel are at our best selves when we're in alignment with that. 
And a lot of psychological and emotional distress can come when we're not in alignment from that. Like an oak seed is supposed to become an oak tree, but if it for some reason is in an environment where it's trying to become something else, it's, it, it, it doesn't work out that well. Like that seed is always supposed to become an oak tree. Like in that way, it's that, that's its fate. But that definitely is from a, a, um, a small place that is grown out of and grown into and created um, versus externally imposed upon it, I think. And I think people have that internal quality of their own soul or personality or what they feel called to do in their lives. You know, I think we all have particular interests and particular visions and particular demeanors. And, and I do think that each of us is born with a seed of our best and greatest potential. And do we try to align with that and become whatever it is that we are inclined and inherited to be? Or do we try to make something else of that? And how far away from that original, you know, blueprint do we stray? You know, I, you know, do we try to live in complete opposition to, you know, I really want to be a painter, but instead I went into finance and I'm miserable. Well, that's because you're supposed to be a painter, you know? Um, <laughs> whereas if some mm. people work in finance and they love that, great, you were supposed to work in finance. You know, I, I think it's figuring out like, where where does your soul want to go and that's that's what you should follow which i think is very internally created and sensed and experienced versus this outer outer structure being imposed mm -hmm. which of course assumes that we always have a choice um in that way but i i think i hear what you're saying when when we are in alignment with what we well i guess i guess i, I no I, I take that back i have i have a question is it in alignment with what we think we should be or what we should be because if you were trained to do something or grew up being told you should be something or just have always imagined yourself as something and don't find yourself in alignment with that path, you created that external structure, or someone did, mm -hmm. right? But it feels like an internal structure because it's all you've known. Yeah. And that's sort of, you know, in, in Pike's case, he has the, you know, he's a captain. He has created this career trajectory for himself. So he already has that um, internal structure of like what he thinks his character is. And we see that played out, especially um, in the Discovery and Strange New World episodes, where he has a particular kind of captain who leans into uh, a more sort of relationship-oriented, idealistic um, outcome than, for example, Kirk. This is my ship. More importantly, this is my crew. I will not call it the search. I will not leave two of them out there, certainly not when one is accused of crimes I don't believe he committed. Our strength comes from our willingness to see a partner instead of an enemy. In our culture, that is an act of faith and strength, not a failure of character. 
Uh, but then there's this external structure given to him by this knowledge of fate given to him by these time crystals. You carry the weight of the eternal future, Chris. Which in some ways affirms his sense of identity and in, and in another way clearly destroys it. Um, and the piece that he finds tenuous though it may be at the end of a quality of mercy to me he would have because of his internal motivations i think we're meant to understand made the same choices like to say those cadets right that's sort of the the thing here yeah if he had no knowledge of the future at all he would have made that choice yeah and him having that knowledge then cause him to second guess himself and then the whole plot is no don't second guess yourself even though what you know to ha- the consequence will be will suck for you yeah. <laughs> stay true to what you already would have done right mm-hmm. which suggests that whether or not fate is real which we can't know um your own the only thing you have to rely on is your own instinct I like I like where you ended because I think you you found a way to saying you being your most authentic self is the most important thing that you can be in the world. Like you being you is what's supposed to happen. And that's like the best case scenario and don't second guess that. Like you need to be you regard like almost regardless of the consequences, but at least you have that integrity. And that, even Mm -hmm. if the situation doesn't work out well, I think most people draw some comfort from that. Going back to where you started, um, you're right. Like, a lot of people are told, you should be this, you should act this way, like, this is what's acceptable, this isn't. Like, we get that from our culture, from our families. Um... But that's not necessary. It's not always a good thing, you know. Um, a lot of what I've been studying in human development revolves around the idea of parents have a responsibility to their child to let the child become whoever it is they are, versus saying you need to be this, you need to be that, and and almost controlling the way the child grows up, like 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 a tree. Let's go with that tree example, like saying this branch needs to go there, this branch needs to go here, the trunk needs to go, like, bend in this way. They're manipulating, essentially, the growth and development of the tree versus letting the tree grow on its own and being there to support the tree in its own growth and development and and the person. And when you have, when you grow up with parents who support you in your own authentic becoming, that is what, is the most psychologically sound. There's this concept called mirroring, and especially when we're when we're young, the only way we can really understand who we are is by the by the way people around us treat us, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and like and when you're older that's something that you can start to separate from, but when you're a kid that that is how you learn about who you are is the way that you're mirrored by your caretakers, the way you're attuned to by your caretakers. And that is so important. And and it comes back to this idea of, are you being allowed to grow and develop in your own natural course 
or are you being constrained and manipulated and forced into a forced into becoming something you otherwise wouldn't have become and and so much of therapy and so much of psychological work is rediscovering who your authentic self is and getting back to that and figuring out oh here is what i actually believe regardless of what my parents think regardless of what my culture thinks i have finally the convictions of my own internal knowing and moral compass and and that's the work you know and and the earlier that can start the better because it's so much harder to make a tree change its shape after it's grown into a certain shape you know whereas like if you can just if you can support its growth in its own way that's the best case scenario So the first season of Strange New Worlds is bookended by Pike having a little dinner and or breakfast uh, and a little romantic encounter with Captain uh, Vittel, who is kind of a fuck buddy, a Marada, um, casual love interest. Uh, but at the same time, of course, we're looking at exploring in these episodes um he has a very important connection to Vina and that becomes a defining part of his, his arc is his romantic connection with her. And I have to say it is refreshing to see that kind of depiction in fiction of there not just being the one all defining romantic relationship in a person's life. Different people get you in different ways and I really like to see that. Yeah, I like that too. And, and you know, even in the middle of the um, Strange New World season, he has another romantic encounter with um, a woman in the episode Lift Us Where Suffering Cannot Reach. And that ends mm -hmm. badly. Or <laughs> they, they part ways for very understandable and important reasons. But, you know, right. it was also implied they already knew each other and they were able to reconnect and all these different connections and relationships like they're just there's an openness to it and a way that i feel like they don't conflict or interfere with each other that just i i like the openness of that and it feels it just feels relaxed in a way that i really appreciate fully agree and that is a dimension to what we've seen so far in the development of pike's character that i admire and i think sets him apart uh, you know we've had a lot of starship captains over the decades and it's it's hard i mean there are there are direct comparisons to be made obviously between pike and kirk having commanded the same starship and the same crew to a large extent um but obviously between him and picard and to a lesser extent archer and Tisco and janeway um they're the, the, the thing which seems to be central to his character is this openness and this centrality of relationships in his mm -hmm. life that is really lovely to see. And I am looking forward to how that continues uh, in Strange New Worlds in, in future seasons. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to talk about uh, relationships of a different type. We're going to be talking about parenting. Mostly good. 
Um, <laughs> there's a lot of parenting in Star Trek, but I, I think next week's episodes are mostly good examples. Yeah, I, and as especially as I'm learning, like the way like childhood is such a formative time in our lives um, psychologically, like that the way our families of origin teach us about ourselves and about the world sets us up for the rest of our lives in incredibly profound ways. So parenting is super, super important. I have, not being a parent yet myself, I have a lot of respect and humility for those who have taken that, taken that plunge. Um, but it's really, there are so many things that I think are really important for not only parents, but just people in general to know about how you can interact with children to set them up for psychological success. And I'm really excited to kind of explore that in the Star Trek universe. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about that with you. Uh, in the meantime, thank you, uh, as always, for your insights. Thank you to our listeners and patrons. Don't forget to check us out on YouTube and Spotify and Google Podcasts and Patreon and all that good stuff. And until then, uh, we will see you next week. Yeah, live long and prosper. Art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially... <laughs> Yay! Thank you. You better save that for an outtake. <laughs> <laughs>